I'm Paola Lettieri, I'm Professor of Chemical Engineering at UCL and Academic Director for UCList. Today is the second lecture of, IC, of a series which is dedicated to UCList and so the programs and activities that the new campus will encompass. The spotlight today is on Cultural Lab, which brings together three faculties across UCL namely the Arts and Humanities, the Social and Historical Sciences, and the Institute of Education to create a new set of innovative and exciting spaces that will create a new research and enterprise educational programs and public engagement on areas of activities around arts and making, heritage and conservation, film and media and production, but then of course also games and play, which is very much the subject of the lecture today. Playing the archive, it's a fine and fun example of what Cultural Lab will have on offer at the new campus. It really connects the past with the present and the future, in this occasion through games and play. So, Professor Andrew Byrne is giving us a fantastic lecture on playing the archive. It stems from a project funded by the EPSRC, the Engineering Physical Science Research Council, in collaboration with the University of Sheffield, but also with CASA, the Center for Advanced Spatial Analysis of the Bartlett at UCL. It connects the past with the present because it basically uses archives of play of 20,000 children from the 50s and the 60s, revoiced through today's children. And this installation, which we can all play with, is currently on show at the V&A Museum of Childhood. So Andrew Byrne is our professor at UCL in English, media and drama at the Institute of Education, but also the director of Digital Arts Research and Education. You have a fun job at UCL. I've read that you are also the director of Magical Projects. This is an enterprise development in which Andrew is getting our students to develop games by way of um, educational uh, approaches. Andrew is interested in um, uh, uh, po popular culture, and in particular how it connects uh, play, games, uh, arts, and education. Playing the archive. Thank right. you. Thank you very much, Paola. Hello, everybody. Thanks for coming. Um, so these things will become clearer, of course, as I go through. Um, I've put the um, social media contacts at the top of the uh, first slide. So there's the website for the project and the Twitter feed as well. There's also a hashtag time telephone, which Paul has given you a clue about, which I'll remind you of a little bit later. So our project um, begins really with, it begins um, really with this book and with the archive associated with it. So this year is the 60th anniversary of the publication of this landmark book in the understanding and scholarly research into children's play. The Law and Language of School Children by Iona and Peter Opie, who I'll tell you a little bit more about in a minute. The book was based on um, an extraordinary piece of research of really impressive proportions, um, which shared some of the methodology of the mass observation movement. Um, it was a survey sent 
to um, schools and children and teachers and other people across the UK, um, which resulted in an enormous return of written accounts of children's play from the 1950s, um, in some cases supervised by teachers, which the OPs then collated painstakingly um, into a research archive, and out of which came this book, which had a selection of that archive in it. Um, so it's a kind of bewildering diversity of genres of games, some of which you'll be familiar with, from ones we don't see so much now, like marbles, through chasing games and choosing games, to songs, rhymes, superstitions, jokes, rituals, hoaxes, dressing up, drama, all kinds of things. So this collection, which was deposited at the Bodleian Libraries in Oxford, is the archive that our project is based on, and which I'll talk a bit more about. Um, the Opies, to say a little bit more about them, these are their other publications. Um, I'll just mention The Singing Game, which was published in 1985 by Iona Opie after Peter's death, um, which was based on her own um, excursions into playgrounds across the UK with her trusty tape recorder, which I think she may have bought from Debenhams. I could be wrong about that, but uh, it was trusty anyway. Um, it, accomplishing what today we would call um, ethnography, or we might call it a form of sociological exploration. But she, I think, saw herself as a folklorist, first and foremost. So the archive that she collected there of cassette tapes and reel-to-reel -reel tapes, she deposited at the British Library, um, where it formed the basis of another project that we did a few years ago. So there, there, there are their dates. Iona died last year um, at, an, at an advanced age and, and knew about the beginning of this project. So we had her kind of blessing, in a sense, and we did for the previous project as well. Um, I've mentioned the uh, collections that they collected through these um, activities, um, so I'll move on. This is Michael Rosen, who some of you may know, who was once the Children's Laureate. He's now teaching children's literature at uh, Goldsmiths, I think. Um, so his kind of characterization of the archive is a new, unique archive of material related to the cultures produced by children and for children. Uh, this is a kind of list, so you can see the enormity of their accomplishment, all, by the way, um, conducted in an unfunded um, manner, unattached to any academic institution, without any of the funding that we kind of not exactly take for granted, it's quite hard work to get it, but we, which we assume we need for, for our projects in the university. Um, I've highlighted some in red because those are the ones that, um, that are the archives on which our projects have been based. So a little bit about the OP Manuscript Archive at the Bodleian. Here's a page of one of them. Um, this is collected from Sheffield, but there are in fact um, uh, the games from all over the UK, which were sent in from Newcastle to, to Camden, from Cardiff to Birmingham, um, from Aberdeen to Hampshire. We've been to some of these sites during our project, by the way. So that's what they look like. Lots of pages of kind of inky scrawl, sometimes neater, sometimes less neat, sometimes corrected by the teacher, um, of children from the 1950s and 60s. And those are the cardboard boxes that they're stored in in the basement of the Bodleian, where they've been almost inaccessible to the general public until our project began. And I'm now glad to say that they've mostly been um, imaged by the Bodleian's Imaging Center, and they'll be available online very soon. 
This is the other archive. So here's an extract um, from the recordings um, at the British Library. So this is a recording of Iona Opie um, collecting uh, this game, Eeny Meeny Destamini, which is a, a, a wonderful um, example of its genre. It's a clapping game, so it's a hand clapping game. This is mostly a female genre, so you know, women in the audience may remember when they were girls playing hand clapping games with, with rhymes that sort of you know, vary from innocent to scurrilous. This, this one's sort of in the middle, I think. So you'll hear a little bit snatch of Iona's voice at the beginning and then the children playing it. So this is uh, from... Actually, this is from the Bodleian as well. I thought this was from the British. Yeah, yeah. 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 Anyone recognize that? Anyone played something similar when they were a child? Similar. You, you recognize the genre, if not the specific one. Okay, so why is it relevant today? Well, um, one of the reasons is that there's far more there than they could fit into the books. So we, we get an insight into variants of ones which are presented almost as exempl standard exemplars in the books. So we can see a lot about the variety of the forms and texts which they collected. Some of it was received too late for publication. We haven't said it here, but there, there was a little bit of censorship going on. Some of the, um, not so much in the um, Bodleian collection, but in the British Library tapes, there are some really quite hair-raisingly scatological and scurrilous rhymes, um, mostly by naughty boys, I think, actually, um, which Oxford University Press really didn't want to publish. So uh, we, get in, we get access to that material as well. So it's an extensive, unique, really unique um, data set which now has longitudinal value. And we can see something about the kind of landscape of play really from that moment to this in what effectively is a kind of short version of the 20th century moving into the 21st century. This is just a little snatch of the previous project we did from 2009 to 2011, uh, which I also had the privilege of leading, again with Sheffield University, though this was before our merger with UCL, so uh, we didn't have CASA to play with then. Um, and this was based, as I said, on the British Library Sound Collection. That was the book that came out of it, Children's Games in the New Media Age. Um, and there were, there were many activities, many strands. It was a large project uh, under the AHRC's Beyond Text program, the Arts and Humanities Research Council, that is. Um, but in a way, the main effort there was to digitize and catalogue the collection of tapes there. And it, you can go online, you can find the catalogue, you can stream it live wherever you are to your computer, wherever in the world. And if you have academic access, you can download those files as well. So on to the, uh, the, main, the main item um, on the menu, which is the project we're doing at the moment. We're coming up to the end of this project. It's 2017 to 2019, so we're, we're getting there. But there's still a frightening amount to do, I'm afraid, so uh, a little bit scary. Um, funded by the EPSRC, as Paula said, and again, there's the social media contacts at the top. This is a well-known photograph of Iona and Peter Ropey, by the way, showing that they can do skipping games as well, even at their advanced age. Um, 
and I've stolen this slide, I'm, away, I'm afraid, from my colleague Valerio Signorelli at CASE. It's one of his, he's much better at uh, putting together PowerPoint presentations than I am, so it's a shameless steal, but I have to attribute it to him. Um, just a little word about why we think this fits well into the program of Culture Lab and UCL East. Um, we, we've rather cheekily badged it as a sort of advanced research project for Culture Lab because, in effect, Culture Lab doesn't come online until the buildings are opened on the Olympic Park. But we thought it has a lot in common with that. So myself and Andy Hudson-Smith, who are both kind of very aware of the growing themes for UCL East, know that it's important there to build collaborations with the Olympic Park partners. So this project fits in that sense. It's a collaboration with the V&A, uh, with the Museum of Childhood specifically, but also with the V&A more broadly, who are taking a big hand in the management and running of the Museum of Childhood and in the construction of a new gallery um, for which the museum will close in November, particularly the kind of digital infrastructure that's built into that gallery. It's working with communities in East London. So one of the primary schools we've collaborated with is a school on the Isle of Dogs. Another one is uh, right in the center of the city. Um, it explores the creative, social, cultural, and educational potential of uh, cutting-edge digital tools. It's a uh, it's, uh, soundbite, but I hope I can justify it a little bit later on. And it's an interdisciplinary project. Um, so for us, it's important to kind of bridge the arts and sciences. So we have an element of computer science in it. We have ethnographers. We have folklorists. We have ethnomusicologists, we have media studies specialists, we have games designers. It's a very interdisciplinary um, affair, which always excites me. And I think, again, is kind of, I hope will be characteristic of the work at UCL East. So the questions we had, um, these are the sort of big questions, really. So we have the archive. It was, deposit it was created in the 1950s. Um, how can it function as a repository of cultural memory today? Well, obviously, it can't function at all if it's just in cardboard boxes in the basement of the Bodleian. Um, but digitizing it and putting it online, as many of you will know, is only the first step. You know, how can we take it further? How can we bring the archive to life? How can we reanimate it? How can we make it get up and dance? How does it relate to the repertoires of play of today's children and to their media-based play? These are kind of two separate questions. So one which is always uppermost in everybody's mind is, do they play the same games as the kids in the 1950s, or has that all died out? This is a perennial fear about children's traditional playground games, that they're always dying out, and they've been killed off by screen-based media. So that's, that's the second question. Is their media-based play antagonistic to their physical, traditional play, or does it somehow complement it? The Opies knew that it complemented it, uh, and they charted very effectively how these so-called traditional games, which seem like a kind of folklore, would often incorporate material from radio programs, wireless programs, as they called them then, um, television programs, theme tunes, pop songs of the day, um, films and so on, advertising jingles. So, so they made that point early on, and we find much the same kind of thing, although the landscape of play has changed in the digital era, and video games, which after all are a kind of game, um, have a kind of connection with children's physical play in the playground as well. And finally, how might it serve as a prompt for intergenerational dialogue and understanding about play? So how might it help 
to set up conversations between today's children and their parents and grandparents, because there's a lot of room for misunderstanding about the play of the other generation. As we found setting up kind of tea parties with older people talking to children in Sheffield. So that's, that's our final question. Uh, we're doing four things, so I'll just uh, run through and describe what these are. So as I said, first of all, we're digitizing and cataloging the Bodleian Manuscript Collection. These are my colleagues, Julia Bishop, Kath Bannister, Alison Somerset Ward, and Steve Roud at the University of Sheffield. And the catalogue will be housed at the uh, Dig Digital Humanities Institute in Sheffield. So the collection will be at the Bodleian, the catalogue will be at the DHI in Sheffield. The second thing we're doing, um, so I'll say more about this, but the, in answer to the question of how can we make the archive get up and dance, we had the kind of ambitious idea that we would turn it into some kind of digital or virtual landscape of play that children could enter into in a museum context or a gallery context, in the Museum of Childhood particularly, and so could their parents and grandparents and other visitors. Uh, in fact, this has gone through a series of revisions and has ended up actually being a kind of um, nostalgic retro piece of technology rather than an all-singing, all-dancing piece of VR. But we've made a, a few prototypes along the way. I say we, in fact, these are all made by CASA and by our very, very creative uh, colleague, Dr. Valerio Signorelli, who's uh, our full-time researcher at CASA. So it's, it's Valerio's work you're going to see in a minute, but it's Valerio, Andy Hudson-Smith, Duncan Hay, who's now moved on to Lancaster um, from the Bartlett's. So that's the second thing. The third thing we're doing is, as we did in the previous project, we're updating the record. So we want to go into playgrounds and see whether children are playing those games. Are they playing different games? What's the relationship between their physical play and their media-based play? And what's going on on the playground? So this has been conducted by um, my colleagues at the IOE, John Potter, Kate Cowan, and in Sheffield by Julia Bishop and Jackie Marsh. More about that in a minute. And the final thing, we said we would build experimental playgrounds, which were digitally enhanced. We soon realized this was rather too ambitious and we hadn't allocated quite enough money to actually build a playground. I think we'd have got like, you know, a square foot of tarmac is about all we could have managed. So we've done something rather different with this, but it is about how we can um, construct play trails which somehow invoke the archive, pull it through into physical landscapes, the built environment in some kind of way um, in the sites that we're working in, in Sheffield and London. So this is Helen Woolley, who's a landscape architect at the University of Sheffield, Alison Somerset Ward from the same department, Stephanie Sutton, who's uh, working with the Museum of Childhood in London, and Valerio again. Actually, Valerio is the, uh, the common factor to all these strands. So um, we've been puzzling, really, about how to connect the archive with the repertoires of play that we're seeing in the playground today. The Opies wrote in law and language, um, the everyday games have usually been overlooked. And the verbal law, which meant so much in the life of a 10-year-old at the time, has been too ordinary to be filed in memory's archive. I think they're talking just about the adult world in general, but they tend to forget that this thing exists. So rather than being an act of cultural memory, it's an act of cultural amnesia. Adults forget it's there. And we've often had the experience in both projects of talking to teachers, playground supervisors, parents, 
who say that play doesn't exist anymore. They don't do that. They just run around making a lot of noise. And sure enough, when you look at the playground, it looks as if that's what's happening. It's certainly extremely noisy. I have a small video in a minute. Um, but when you look more deeply at it, you find those structures are still there. The genres of play are still there. Of course, some games have gone and some new ones have arisen. But play is flourishing in the sense that the OPs would have recognized. So we're thinking, what's the relationship? Um, we're thinking it's kind of about, um, it's about remembering, but it's also about forgetting. Um, it's hard to talk about the archive without sort of, you know, giving a nod to these august figures of, of French um, philosophy and cultural theory. But they are quite helpful, these two quotations, actually. So, so Jacques Derrida um, memorably described the archive as hippomnema, the uh, ancient Greek practice of keeping a kind of record which could serve as a memory trigger for the future. A mnemotechnical supplement or representative, auxiliary or memorandum. The archive takes place at the place of originary and structural breakdown of memory. I mean, this is Derrida being kind of um, characteristically pessimistic. But his argument is that, you know, you institute an archive in order to support memory, and it can have the effect of uh, memory no longer being necessary because the archive takes its place. Now, that is, a, that is a question. And we are aware of the fact that children notoriously uh, are amnesiac about the history of their games. You ask them where their game came from, they, they'll very often say, I just made it up. And the Opies noted this as well. So they're not aware of that. Actually, I had a girl once who said, no, no, it's a really old game. I said, really old? She said, yeah, it's like Cinderella. It's really old. I said, oh, how old is that? She said, oh, 10 years. <laughs> so their conceptions of time and expanses of time across generations, across historical periods is, is quite distorted from an adult's perception, but often they just, they're just not aware of it. Why, why would they be? It is interesting to introduce them to it because a new kind of memory begins to happen. But we've also looked at 11-year-olds who stop playing these games. When they go to secondary school, they often stop playing them. And at that point, there is a kind of memory. They remember playing them. They remember them fondly, but already the process of remembering them but also beginning to forget them starts to happen. By contrast with adults, um, something rather different happens. I, the adults clearly remember the games they played as children. So when they get to the age of sort of 60 or something, you know, those, those, those long-term memories are there in sharp focus, framed by a kind of nostalgic glow. What they do is kind of forget the future. They, they forget forwards. They forget that children still play these games. So there's, a, there's an interesting and contradictory kind of mix of remembering and forgetting going on here, which does do some justice to Derrida's kind of um, conception. Foucault is a bit more um, optimistic uh, that the epomnemata constituted a material memory of things read, heard, or thought, offering these as an accumulated treasure for rereading and later meditation. So I think for us, that's quite a good characterization of how we hope the archive will function and how we're already seeing it function effectively as, as a memory trigger, which will promote dialogue, um, explicit understanding, and some kind of intergenerational conversation um, about play. The other way of thinking about the archive, though, um, is uh, as a kind of embodied practice. 
So this researcher, Diana Taylor, who's looked at uh, children's play in America, um, has thought about how we can think about performance. The archive is not good at capturing performance. All the OP archives are, are, are linguistic. They're, they're written texts or they're recordings of speech. So there's no way to capture the kind of embodied nature of the performance of play. They can't capture the gestures. They can't capture the movement around the built environment. Um, all of those things are beyond them, and they were working before the advent of video and what we would now know as visual ethnography. Um, we're in an advantage position because we have the cameras, we have the GoPros, we have the, the VR and the AR, so we can begin to capture those things. But in a sense, when we do that, and when we watch a child running around the playground, um, performing a series of ritual actions, which we know has a very long history, perhaps over 100 years, um, what we're seeing, in a way, is a kind of embodied living archive, you know, in the movements of the child, in their memory of those movements, in the rather mysterious process by which they learnt them, through a process of what we used to call oral transmission, but that term doesn't do justice to the learning of movement kinetic transmission, perhaps, or something like that. We're seeing a kind of embodied archive. So another way to think about archive and memory. Um, here, then, are some of the ways in which we've tried to deal with this. So for one of uh, Valerio's prototypes, we thought, well, could we maybe construct a kind of, um, could we construct a kind of digital child, a virtual child, who could stand, or a boy and girl, perhaps, who could stand as proxy for those children of the 50s, whose voices we hear, whose, whose words we see on these rather ghostly pieces of paper, could we bring them to life through the body of a virtual child? So that was Valeria's first effort. This, is, this clip is set in Casa itself. So this is an AR construction using a, um, a 3D model of a child. Slightly creepy. I think it's what researchers in games and VR call the uncanny valley. Um, so we showed this to our, our sort of um, advisory group, and they were slightly freaked out by this. So it's, uh, especially when he starts moving, even more freaky. Anyway, the, the idea of a virtual kid who could transmit the content of the archive somehow was something we started to look at early on. Here he is walking through Casa, past the filing cabinets, past the exciting photocopy. <laughs> hoping you were going to join in. <laughs> Where were you when I need you? Um, okay, here's the second one. So this is what Valerio called Sonic Hopscotch. So this is a version, again, it's an AR application, so they're in CASA, but we've tried this in the Museum of Childhood as well. So what would it be like to play Hopscotch in an AR, on an AR um, image, and to make it sonic? So it plays London Bridges Falling Down as you do the Hopscotch. And it's also, he's tried to construct it as a portal through to the archive. So on certain squares, it triggers a piece of recording from the um, OP archive.
let's have a different one then. Okay. And don't do it your way. Bell's going. Well, wait. So that's Iona talking. Uh, another one. Actually, I'll skip that one because that didn't. We didn't go very far with that one. I'll move on to the one which we ended up with. Um, after all these prototypes, in fact, in the end, the museum decided that coping with VR headsets and AR kind of tablets was really far too much trouble. Uh, they'd have to train staff. There were health and safety implications, and we started to talk about the idea of an old telephone with, in, with which you could phone up the past. And as we talked about it, it grew in our imagination. We tried it out with the kids. They thought it was a great idea, even though they had only a very vague idea of what a rotary telephone dial was like. Um, and somehow it seemed appropriate to the project. Um, you know, it's a, it's a piece of retro engineering, although it is digital, of course. It's got a Raspberry Pi concealed inside its 1970s um, gleaming exterior. So this is what we've adopted, and we put it in a replica telephone booth which we've installed at the Museum of Childhood. And we've been around the UK recording children um, revoicing the archive. We started off with them just reading it, but we've ended up with them doing kind of full-on performances. Um, so some of them are quite animated. Uh, so we've got one here. That's a monkey. Three, six, nine. The goose drank wine. The monkey chewed tobacco on the streetcar line. The line broke. The monkey got choked. And they all went to heaven in a literal boat. So, um... So you dial the number from the telephone booth. It's got a list of all the games inside. You dial the number that you want to hear. So we're logging which ones they uh, are most popular. There are two that nobody's dialed. I can't remember what they are. The most dialed one is a game called A Fart Went Rolling Down the Hill, unsurprisingly. Um, so we've installed that. Um, we've been visiting the Museum of Childhood. It went in over Easter, so we've been watching people play. Um, it's very often children um, accompanied by adults. So the adults are kind of mediating it because the children are kind of too young to, to read the... Um, read the instructions. Um, but what that also means is that if there are only children in, sometimes they, they just don't dial it. So about 50% of the calls are kind of non-calls to a number at all. It's basically children talking to their imaginary friend. So there's quite a lot of that, which would be nice to capture somehow, but uh, it's not included in our ethics application, so it's going to be difficult. Um, But we're logging, as I say, which ones have been um, used. So that is going successfully. We're going to install another one. Um, we're going to install another one in Sheffield at the Site Gallery. Has anyone been to the Site Gallery in Sheffield? It's an art gallery, but it, it uh, does a lot of work in new media. Um, and it's got a piece of waste ground outside it called uh, the Pinball Park is just concrete pillars and waste ground. So they're doing some activities around this um, there. Um, but we've gone a bit further. As I say, we've been looking at games on the playground itself. We've been trying to look at how we can look at the different angles of play. This is a game called Granny's Footsteps, which lots of you probably remember. So this is the girl who's Granny. So we're looking at it from three points of view. This is my colleagues, um, John and Kate at IOE. So they're taking films of it from the top of the building so they can get a, a bird's eye view of it. 
They've got the GoPro strapped to the chest of the girl who's granny, so they get like a first-person view of it. Uh, and they've got um, the researcher's point of view as well. So in this way, we can see point of view, which is a sort of interesting concept in games. I mean, it's an interesting concept in video game theory, of course. And when you look at the, um, the video of the girl who is granny with a GoPro cam, you can see that it looks very like As I was saying, it enables us to maybe make some analysis of the way in which play inhabits the built environment, um, which is endlessly interesting. I mean, it, in the 1950s, of course, play would often be stretched out along a long line because it was played in the street, um, with one side of the street and the other side of the street as opposing structures. Um, playgrounds bring a different kind of uh, environment. School playgrounds, another one. The way in which children use bricks and tarmac imaginatively is kind of endlessly interesting. Uh, this is a traditional game. It's probably relatively recent, from the 80s, I think. But the children have modified it and turned it into a game about their iPhone. So an example of how their media use... Ready? Which one? Can you do iPhone? And just one other thing to add before I move to, to the conclusion of this. We're interested in what happens when children play video games in their bedroom or in their, in their home, on their console, and they inhabit a richly elaborated visual landscape. What happens when they bring that onto the playground, where they don't have any of that richly elaborated visual landscape, they just have their imagination? And in the previous project, we found that what they were doing was imaginatively laying kind of layer over the bricks and tarmac of the playground and imagining the deserts of um, Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2, which was the big game the eight-year-old boys were enthusiastic about at the time, um, rehearsing linguistic structures, dialogue from the game, often in other languages, um, and basically re recreating the game through imagination, but also through the one resource they do have that's more elaborate than the avatar in the video game, their bodies. So that's interesting. You get this traffic between the, the world of virtual games and the world of physical games, rather than the antagonism which um, um, moral panics of adults often imagines. I haven't got time to play this, but the same thing is happening today, and we've looked at children in, in London, in Sheffield, in Cardiff, which is where this group come from, talking about and playing routines from Fortnite which The Guardian seems to be extremely exercised about at the moment, but unduly pessimistic, I think, because once again we find that those games are incorporated into the children's play, particularly the flossing dance, which uh, they do extremely expertly. I have a video of flossing, but no time to play it. So we've taken this a stage further with Valeria and thought, what would happen if we motion capture their physical adaptation of the virtual game and make it virtual again. So here is a virtual child um, enacting the movements of a physical child who's standing in front of the motion capture trackers and doing the floss. 
So this is a physical chart from one of our schools being captured. It's his movements mapped onto the, the 3D digital model. So we've got some interesting kind of data to think about this traffic between the virtual world and the physical world and how for children this is a natural thing to do. Those divisions, those gaps don't exist for them. It's one joined up culture of play and we, we've got some new ways we think to look at that. So I think most of these things I've said really, we found these, these useful ways of connecting virtual play and physical play. We found some useful things about memory and forgetting, as I was saying earlier. We found some useful things about play spaces, whether they're virtual spaces or physical built spaces and how the two relate to each other. We found, as we found before, that games are subject to continuity and change, as the OPs said, games evolve. Uh, they change, some are lost, some are found. And I'm gonna sort of end with a, a little comment by a 10-year-old boy from one of our groups who put this very well, we thought, and invented this term, gamevolution. If games stayed the same, even if they're really good games, they'll die out. The games that will stay are the ones most adaptable to change, just like animals and plants in evolution. Games have to evolve to suit people's interests in a different time period, so, but if a game stays the same, it will eventually no longer suit people's interest and will die out as a game. Mm. For a game to survive through the ages, it needs to keep modifying the rules again and again in order to suit people's interest for that time period. Very appropriate to have that in the Darwin Lecture Theatre, I think. <laughs> A Darwinian take. So we're thinking of appointing him as the editor of the project book when we eventually get there. And I think I'll just leave the last word to him and not go into my usual uh, rhetorical flourish. But I hope then that these kind of themes will become a dynamic part of the research future of UCL East. Thanks very much. Thank you, Andrew, for such a fascinating talk. Any question from the audience? Just on, on the example of putting the, um, the child's flossing dance back into the digital, can you explain the thinking about what, what are the gains in doing that in the project? Well, one of the things we thought is if we can use 3D models of virtual kids to kind of convey the archive content, which was the original idea, but this, we had this rather kind of complex idea that somehow what we wanted to include in this experience was the archive, but also children's contemporary experiences of play. So if those contemporary experiences of play include their physical adaptations of virtual games, we wanted to be able to put that into this, this virtual representation as well. Another one we tried was a thing we called, um, which we're still experimenting with a bit, um, called Clapping Hero, where we would try to capture the movements of clapping games and with a virtual pair of hands, record them and allow visitors to the museum to play clapping games virtually against the computer, which had captured them from participants in our primary schools. So it's, it's ways of kind of, I suppose in, in effect, it's ways of curating and exhibiting play in the context of museums. Thank you for a very interesting talk. And I just wanted to ask, how are children learning these games? Has the process of transmission actually changed? Because it seems a lot of the transmission is, in some cases, teachers teaching them games. 
and that they then that they then play, or that they 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 learn actually from YouTube. So old nursery rhymes and things. My daughter's learning them from 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 YouTube, which we watch together. So just is is there a different transmission, or is it actually still the same? It's the playground. It's kind of coming from other children. Um, it's it's both the same and it's changed. I think. I mean, in both of these projects, we found that uh, the phenomenon that the Opies. Um, recorded, which they call, I've forgotten the phrase they use, something like aerial ambassadors or something. They, they, in, the, in the law and language, they record uh, a, a scurrilous adaptation of the theme tune of the radio version of Davy Crockett, which was popular with kids in the 1950s, in Wales, I think, and Australia at almost the same time. So there's this puzzling thing of how on earth did it, did it get there? It could be cousins phoning each other up, perhaps, something like that. But I mean, a lot more effectively in a way than broadband does today, I have to say. So that process of um, um, transmission at the same historical moment, but also over time, um, as in the, the well-recorded process of um, oral transmission in folk culture, is obviously still happening. So again, this 10-year-old girl I met on the Isle of Dogs um, a few months ago produced a rhyme, which I know had been collected in a similar project in Australia 10 years earlier. Um, there are numerous other examples of it. I say to her, where did you get it from? She said, I learned it from another girl in the lunch queue when we were bored and we were waiting to go into lunch. So that, that process is still happening. But you're quite right, they're also now learning them from YouTube. And we have a chapter in one of the books from the previous project, written by Julia Bishop, who is a distinguished folklorist, by the way, and co-editor of the new Penguin Book of English Folk Songs. The first Penguin Book of English Folk Songs was uh, Ralph Vaughan Williams and... A.L. Lloyd, so this is a pretty distinguished work. She's written a chapter in which she's charted how she's studied children learning those games from YouTube, and sure, they're all over YouTube, often by middle-aged Americans um, kind of <laughs> nostalgically recalling their childhood and standing on the table. But uh, yeah, so it's all happening, I think. Any other question? Lisa. Uh, thank you for your interesting research. I have one question because you talk about from 1950s now. I want to know uh, what's the difference or different attitude, the people's attitude to children's games, the change. I want to know the change. Uh, the second thing is maybe, uh, diff maybe the people will uh, have different attitude to different kinds of games, maybe the physical games or or video games. Maybe some people, some parents, they want to their children to do more physical games and not the video games. Uh, so I want to know your opinion. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. There's a well-recorded. Um division of opinion about games in the adult community, parents, educators, teachers, the guardian, again, an offender, that, that you know, traditional physical games, often with wooden objects, good, screen-based games, video games, bad, and that the screen-based games somehow destroy the, the other thing. This is not a new phenomenon. Um, some of the collectors of children's games and rhymes and songs in the 19th century collected them for the very reason that they feared they were dying out. Uh, they weren't dying out, and anybody who's ever really researched the playground knows they're not dying out, but that was their intention. And as you said, they would often 
try artificially to reintroduce them by teaching them in schools because they thought they were in danger when in fact they weren't. The reason why people don't notice them is because as the Opies said, they're part of the secret law of childhood. Kids keep them hidden sometimes. So it's quite hard for adults to spot. I mean, they keep them hidden for good reasons sometimes because they're rude or naughty or subversive. Um, so those games still go on. Um, the perception, as I said, that the screen-based media is bad is part of, I think, a kind of general thesis about toxic childhood. There, there is actually a book called Toxic Childhood by a woman called Sue Palmer. And this argument is, again, that you know, childhood is being poisoned by screen media and video games. And really, we should burn all that stuff and get them outdoor, playing with wooden toys where they can recover the real nature of play. And again, the Opies didn't think that. And we don't think that either. I mean, the evidence of our research is for the, the children, those divisions and contests don't mean anything at all. For them, it's all joined up. Thank you, Andrew. Any, any more questions? I, I was curious to know more about the magical projects okay. and what you actually do with the students on that. Okay, so Magical was, um, it started with an EPSRC project to devise a simple software in which young people could make their own 3D adventure games. At that time, you couldn't make adventure games without learning reasonably advanced programming. But the trouble with that is you could learn programming for, for months and still only be able to make a game where the turtle moved from one corner of the screen to the other. So we wanted to minimize the programming and maximize the, the content, if you like. That company went bust in the recession. We acquired the assets. We set it up as magical projects. Um, the software had died because the engine had died. It was made on. We rebuilt it in Unity. And then we did a couple of collaborations with the Globe and with the British Library so that we could make tools with which young people could make games which were adapted from classic literary texts. In these cases, Beowulf, of which the British Library has the unique manuscript, and Macbeth, which is our current one. So we've got a big competition in schools across the UK at the moment to make your own game of Macbeth. And the entries are coming in on the 24th of this month. We have a big judging panel with the head of digital at the Royal Shakespeare Company, um, a curator from the British Library, somebody from the Shakespeare Institute in Birmingham, and so on, who will be judging the game. So we hope to make a big splash about that. Really, it'd be nice to be able to sell it and make a little bit of money, but we haven't managed to do that yet. But really, it's about the, the kind of social good that it can do and the way in which it can help us to transform rather fossilized ideas about narrative and literature and so on in education, higher education as well as um, schools. If you have to think about Shakespeare as a video game, it, it really makes you think about Shakespeare differently. I put on the Twitter feed for Magical Projects a little challenge to the world out there. Could they think of a good name for a video game based on Macbeth? And the best answer I've had so far is somebody who I don't recognize who's come back with Game of Thanes. Yeah, you have to know Macbeth. Sounds fantastic, Thank actually you. magical. <laughs> Thank you very much. Could I please ask you to join me in thanking Andrew again? Thank you. Thank you.